Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello and welcome to this special edition of IFG Live. I'm Sam McCrory. We're recording this podcast five years to the day since the UK voted to leave the EU. Yes, the Brexit referendum really was half a decade ago. So much has happened since. It really feels a whole lot longer. We're not here to celebrate, to commiserate, to commemorate, but it's time to take a look back at what the hell it all meant. The resignations and the renegotiations, the meaningful voting and the meaningless boasting, the promises that came to pass and those that didn't. And to take stock of how government and parliament coped with the Brexit vote and the fiendishly difficult job of getting Brexit done. So let's take a trip down Brexit memory lane with a quartet of IFG experts who know far more about all things Brexit than is good for them. Joe Marshall, Jess Sargent, Maddie Timont-Jack and Jill Rutter. Hello, everyone. Hello. Hi, Sam. Hi, Sam. Hello. We'll also be digging through the IFG archives to remind ourselves what some familiar names said would or would not happen. Okay, let's start by turning back the clock to June the 24th, 2016. Jill, you're the only one here who was at the IFG back then. What was it like in the office the morning after the night before? Did did people realise just how big this all was? Well, I hadn't actually intended to be in the office the morning after the night before and indeed and invited uh, all IFG staff over to my um, flat for a referendum night barbecue, which is notable for me nearly food poisoning all of them by inadequate cooking and uh, cooking of the chickens. But we did settle down to watch the results and various of us actually made it through the entire night uh, thinking that we weren't working on Brexit. It wasn't a very big topic at IFG. We'd be doing a bit of work, had a report that uh, was sort of ready to go in anticipation, I think, of Remain winning about how Parliament could scrutinise Brexit better. And then as it headed towards the sort of, you know, eight o'clock, David Cameron (laughs) resigning, uh, I went off to get a coffee with a colleague and then we suddenly got a message that we were all expected in the office, which certainly hadn't been the plan, to meet our incoming new director because we were in a sort of transfer period where Peter Riddle, who'd been director of IFG for the previous five years, was leaving and Bronwyn Maddox had just been appointed and was joining us in the autumn. And it, we suddenly discovered, we went into the office and suddenly discovered that Bronwyn wanted to make Brexit a big IFG theme. And I remember my immediate reaction was, well, why will anyone listen to the IFG? I mean, what we have studiously avoided over the whole time that IFG has been here is anything that suggests that the European Union has very much influence on British politics uh, or indeed British government. That was um, that was one of my routine criticisms of IFG, that we acted as though the EU didn't exist because we'd always taken the view that it was too polarised a debate for us to get into. So the IFG's the Brexit programme pretty much kicked in on day one. Yes, it kicked in. And actually, it sort of kicked in at quite a pace because normally the IFG, uh, particularly back then, used to do these quite long projects. Um, you you know, go and talk to people for months and then you'd produce a really quite long report. Uh, and they went into a very, very different sort of working mode. And you could see it because you, if we were back in Carlton Gardens, Sam, back in our building, remember we have the atrium on the... Uh, on the floor that we uh, many of us work on and they would be huddling away with daily meetings of the team deciding what was happening and what they were going to do next so that various others of us were sort of pulled in to help out on various aspects of Brexit uh, and I did I think IFG's first 
big written output. We were pulling together events and things like that and starting to, you know, say, actually, we're the Institute for Government. You might not think we have anything to say about Brexit because based on our track record, why would you? But actually we do. And I don't think the IFG was alone in starting from scratch and trying to work out what, what Brexit meant. Everyone seemed pretty sort of bewildered, not not least short of sleep on that on that first day. I mean, did people know what was going on when people like Jeremy Corbyn demanded that Article 50 be triggered the morning after the vote? Did, did Jeremy Corbyn know what Article 50 even was? I don't think anyone was actually paying that much attention to Jeremy Corbyn then. Uh, we were all actually much more riveted by two things the morning after the night before, if you like. One was David Cameron's resignation. I remember sitting on my sofa with a colleague and the moment you saw Sam Cameron emerge from Downing Street with uh, with David Cameron, uh, I said to Akash Pound, my colleague who I think was still here, who'd survived the night, um, he's going to resign. You don't bring your wife out unless you're going to resign. So we knew David Cameron had resigned. And then I think even more interestingly, and perhaps setting the tone for the five years to come, that afternoon was, I think it was the afternoon, maybe it was late morning, so many hours I'd been up by then, was the press conference given by Boris Johnson and Michael Gove, where you thought, actually, they look as though they didn't think they'd win. They don't really know what happens next. And then, of course, we were all riveted by the process of the conservative leadership battle, the sort of nominations, the self-destruction, Gove Johnson. I mean, you know, that seemed to be a sort of very critical period. Um, but what there wasn't in the conservative leadership election, because it was so truncated, was any real opportunity for any of the prime ministerial candidates to actually say what they wanted to do in office and what they thought Brexit meant. And that was really the issue that we were all struggling with then. Well, I think that's a good cue to, to delve into the IFG audio files for the first time in this podcast. And we're going to listen to Bernard Jenkin, who was then a Conservative backbencher and a prominent lead campaigner. And he's speaking at the IFG a week after the vote took place. Yeah, and I think, Sam, this was our first event that we had. We sort of pulled together at very short notice. We thought we've got to, got to get an event up and running. And this was the first event. We're going to be outside this regulatory structure, outside the four freedoms, outside the court and the institutions of the European Union. And to get there, we can't spend five years. If we have five years of this kind of uncertainty, we really will wreck the economy. Maddie, did Theresa May, the, the, the Prime Minister, after David Cameron, know what she wanted from the Brexit negotiations? Did, did the government know what it wanted? For people listening to this podcast, they're probably going to remember, I guess, the t key Brexit tagline, which was Brexit means Brexit. Um, and I think that was that was the sort of main message we really got um, for the sort of um, initial months after the referendum. And obviously, that doesn't really mean um, very much at all. And I think this is one of the possibly one of the the, the problems that came out of the the fact that the uh, the sort of conservative leadership contest was actually sort of cut short by Andrew Leadsom withdrawing from it. I think it meant that there wasn't actually that much time for Theresa May to really figure out what she wanted from Brexit. Um, so we didn't hear very much in the in the first few months. I think the first key moment in terms of getting even a sense of what Theresa May wanted was her party conference speech um, in October 2016. Now, that's really notable because that was the time when she set out some quite clear red lines, notably ending freedom of movement, but also ending the oversight of the European Court of Justice. Now, what's been really interesting sort of in, in the, the sort of uh, the years afterwards is that we've heard from officials in government at the time, um, but also from ministers 
ministers who were there, notably um, the, the Chancellor at the time, Philip Hammond, that actually they didn't know what she was going to say at this conference speech. And, and really, she set those red lines without quite understanding the full implications of that decision. Um, and sort of, you know, she made the speech and then officials turned to her and said, well, that means, you know, you, you want to leave the single market and um, it, it will mean uh, leaving the customs union because um, she had already set up the Department for International Trade, really made the idea of striking trade deals central to Brexit. Um, and I think it was at that point that she sort of really understood quite what she'd she sort of ha- had set out and then spent the next sort of two to three years really rowing back from that pretty hardline position. And I mean, part of the reason that she went for it, the challenge for Theresa May was that she did campaign for Remain. I mean, not particularly prominently, but she did. Um, and she was really keen to to sort of set out her store and say, look, I will be a prime minister that is going to be focused on delivering Brexit. I think the problem is, is that possibly not enough thought had gone into quite what the implications of that speech would be before she made it. I mean, Sam, actually, we'd written a report just a couple of weeks before that party conference speech. Uh, Hannah White and I had written a report called Silence is Not a Strategy. But actually, I think in reflection, maybe rushing to set some very, very hard red lines very quickly wasn't a particularly great strategy either, and maybe one that Theresa May came to regret. Um, I want to play another clip now. This time we're going to hear from Gisela Stewart, the, the former chair of Vote Leave, speaking an IFG event in April 2017. Uh, the event was titled, How Should the Government Approach Brexit Negotiations? There's beginning to be a recognition that these negotiations are about politics and not physics. I, it's not a question of that you have to try and redefine the laws of gravity, which are uh, immovable. Uh, but this is political will, which can make things as easy and as difficult as you want them to be. Gisela Stewart there. Um, Maddie, she mentioned political will. How much was this all about political will in in the way that negotiations were conducted? Well, I think, I mean, negotiations are all politics. Um, You know, it it is about what trade-offs each side is willing to make to reach um, an agreement that is acceptable to them. I think what's what's really interesting about the sort of commentary around Brexit I think particularly at the start was there was a lot of focus on the EU as a sort of legal beast and the fact that actually their red lines were very much set in stone because of the nature of the EU and the fact that it is all about sort of um, laws that all member states sign up to and and, uh, agree to and and that that actually meant it was sort of more tricky for them to move their red lines. Now, I think actually that's that's a sort of slightly oversimplification. I mean, it is is all politics. and, And I think the EU made a political choice right at the start to say that protecting the single market would be the sort of fundamental um, position and their sort of fundamental red line throughout these negotiations, while the UK sort of tried to persuade them that there there might be um, other ways to to reach an agreement that was acceptable to both sides. I mean, the UK also had its own very clear red lines, particularly um, under Boris Johnson around sort of the idea of sovereignty and and the determination to take back control of of our laws. But I think that, you know, what, what we saw I think the sort of the example that sums it up most cleanly is is the different approach that both Theresa May and Boris Johnson took to Northern Ireland. You know, we did have two agreements with the EU reached on how to handle uh, Northern Ireland and to ensure there wouldn't be a hard border on the island of Ireland once both sides had accepted that was a fundamental um, aim. Um, and we saw that Theresa May made a choice that 
put the sort of the union at the center and she made a choice to to agree to a backstop that would ensure that there wouldn't have to be any checks on goods moving between Great Britain and Northern Ireland um, and she she sort of was really concerned about the idea of agreeing to a, a sort of a border in the Irish Sea and then we saw that very quickly after Boris Johnson became Prime Minister he made a very different different political choice and he made a choice that was more acceptable to the backbenchers in his party and um, ensured that Great Britain would be outside of the customs union wouldn't need to align with the EU on rules uh, applying to goods um, but it has obviously had implications for um, the relationship between Great Britain and Northern Ireland and has some quite serious um, political consequences in Northern Ireland at the moment so I think you know ultimately it's about politicians and the choices that they're willing to accept um, and I think that that the, the sort of as I say the, the different approach that Boris Johnson, Theresa May um, took to Northern Ireland I think encapsulates that quite neatly. Just to add to what Maddie has said, I think it's quite uh, notable how this kind of essential incompatibility between the the UK's desire for complete regulatory freedom and the EU's desire to protect the single market um, is still dominating UK and EU discussions over how the protocol is being implemented now. Um, As Maddie said, we landed on a slightly different version of the protocol with Boris Johnson, which meant there are the need for checks between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Uh, the UK government's now asking for extra flexibility on how those are implemented, and the EU is very resistant to that. So I think throughout this five years, there's been very much this theme of this kind of intractable political problem and in- incompatibility between between the two aims that I don't think um, is going to go away anytime soon. I think throughout, the UK made lots of uh, of errors. It underestimated EU unity quite badly. It thought that member states would not hold together. And when they held together on the withdrawal agreement, they then assumed that the EU would have a have a harder time holding its unity in the second stage when, you know, vital ec- national economic interests were in play. That didn't really materialise very much. It thought um, that it could basically play hardball with the EU. Uh, there's a great quote from Philip Hammond, and I'm going to plug this in the UK and the Changing Europe Brexit Witness Archive. Sorry, Sam. Uh, he describes David Davis's approach to negotiations, you know, as coming out of his origins as an SAS uh, officer, sort of basically grabbing the lapels and, you know, staring down the other person saying, this is how it's going to be. Uh, the UK thought it could tie up the trading relationship almost simultaneously with the withdrawal agreement. Um, but it basically, what the UK learnt actually is more or less what the EU wanted. The EU got. When you mentioned David Davis, it was, I mean, he predicted the big row of the summer he would win over the whole choreography of the talks that, that the UK could negotiate the divorce terms in the future deal at the same time. It, we should, it didn't get what it wanted. How did that play into the, the whole political debate going forward and the, the way the talks panned out? The EU was always absolutely clear that contrary to everything David Davis said, it was never going to start the proper formal negotiations on um, the future relationship before the UK became a third country. It didn't do that with member states. So I think the EU was quite inflexible because remember, this is, you know, Article 50 was relatively new. This was the first outing for Article 50. And I do remember an event where we had um, Michel Barnier, spokesman on a panel at the IFG. And I was on the panel and I said something like, Article 50 is clearly not working. It's a recipe for unnecessary conflict and is dysfunctional. And Stefan de Rink said, 
well, we're not going to reform it because we have no intention of ever using it again. <laughs> so back in you box, you Brits, but uh, which was quite interesting. I think there was a lot of awareness that both sides were using the island issue to try and secure the sort of future relationship that they wanted. There was concern on the EU side that the UK was using the uh, using Ireland and some of the Irish government's concerns about Ireland to sort of stake a claim for a very favourable long-run trading relationship between the UK and the EU, which was much, uh, much more, um, if you like, um, provided loads more rights for the UK than it did obligations. So in a sense, that was how the UK intended to use Ireland as a sort of wedge between into the single market and the customs union. And equally, of course, what we saw and what finally did for Theresa May was the concern on the side of particularly the European Research Group and the Conservative uh, harder Brexit supporters that the EU was using the backstop as a way of trapping the UK permanently in the EU's orbit. I just want to bring Joe in and ask whether you think that actually over time the government got better at negotiating or whether Boris Johnson and his team were just better negotiators in the end than Theresa May had been? I suppose looking back, uh, sort of thinking about how naive, I suppose, the Theresa May government was at the start and sort of the benefit of hindsight that the Boris Johnson government had, I suppose. Um, I think, you know, as sort of uh, Maddie and Jill have been saying, you know, Theresa May went into negotiations, triggered Article 50, having sort of set out those red lines, but not necessarily really thought through the trade-offs that that would involve, or perhaps thought about whether or not there was a strong enough coalition to support uh, the sort of position she had taken within her party and within Parliament. And I think that, you know, really the sort of problem that Theresa May had is that when we got to the end of that Article 50 period and we saw that Article 50 deadlines become more flexible, uh, no longer really seen as a deadline, it put Theresa May in a really difficult situation where her threat of sort of no deal that's better than a bad deal seemed weaker and weaker. It was really difficult for her to portray a sense of being in control of things because in many ways she just wasn't. And ultimately, I think that is what sort of lay the groundwork for the sort of arguments used by Boris Johnson and others, the sort of arguments that Parliament was trying to block Brexit, that we needed a clearer solution, that you know we needed to change tack and sort of take a different approach. And I think, as Jill was saying, that meant sort of pivoting towards a kind of Brexit that had sort of been on the table for a while, but which involved sort of very difficult trade-offs. And I think one thing that we have been critical of the Johnson administration on is that while it chose to change tack, it chose to sort of, you know, push forward on, you know, the new revised withdrawal agreement and the revised Northern Ireland Protocol, it wasn't really upfront enough about the things that Jess was talking about, about the trade-offs that means for the trade between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And I think that is what has come back to, to bite it later on. But I do think we need to sort of give... Theresa May's government a little bit of sort of, I suppose, credit or understanding. Uh, I think you know some of the things that have been mentioned about looking back to when Article 50 was triggered and the start of the Brexit process, actually, you know, Article 50 had never been used before. In many ways, sort of, we found out that it had, sort of, it was set up in a way that did favour the EU. Um, you know, the EU wasn't willing to start those formal talks until Article 50 was triggered. There was a lot of political pressure around from within the Conservative Party and others to be seen to be delivering on Brexit. And at the time that Article 50 was triggered, Theresa May had a majority in government and, you know, probably expected a much easier ride than she got. And I think, you know, if she had known that the arithmetic would have been different, um, 
I think that imperative to build consensus would have been stronger. And I think we might have seen a slightly different approach. So um, I think, you know, the government was a little bit naive to start so early. I think Boris Johnson was able to benefit from sort of learning from some of those lessons and I suppose also pushing some of the big problems to the future and kicking them into the long grass. And we still see some of those are not fully resolved yet anyway. I think, Sam, that Boris Johnson's ask of the EU was a much easier ask for the EU to concede. Theresa May was trying to negotiate a very special deal and Boris Johnson basically said, no, I don't want a special deal. I want a bog standard deal and I'm prepared to accept really quite severe barriers between the UK or in the case of goods GB and the EU as a price for my sort of sovereignty first Brexit. And that was much more compatible with the sort of EU protections. Theresa May is making much harder ask. The irony for Theresa May is that she actually did force the EU quite a long way in uh, in terms of negotiating the backstop, the EU was forced to concede that all UK customs arrangement with relatively few conditions for the UK and really, really didn't like that. The trouble for Theresa May was that she absolutely failed to sell that to her parliamentary party. So in a sense, her big negotiating triumph was also the source of her downfall. So let's move on to the attempts to sell that deal back home in Parliament, and, and which was the scene of some of the great Brexit battles of the, of the last five years. We're going to hear now from Andrea Leadsom, then leader of the House of Commons, who was speaking at the IFG in September 2017, before the parliamentary drama really got underway. Well, it's a great pleasure to be here this evening to share with you my genuine belief that in spite of what some are saying, this will be a cooperative and collegiate parliament. Cooperative and collegiate is the words she used to say. Maddie, pick two other words to describe Parliament in that period. I mean, I think the first word that springs to mind is gridlock. Um, and the second, I think particularly what I'm thinking of is, is after um, Parliament was prorogued, the Supreme Court ruled that that was um, unconstitutional and, and Parliament was brought back. But I'd say febrile as well. So, I mean, I joined the IFG at a time every single week. There seemed to be another spectacular parliamentary moment, another defeat for the government. And it was a rare moment when... Parliament when MPs seem to have the upper hand. Why was that? Was it the numbers? Was it the role of the Speaker? Or was it just genuine total disagreement over Brexit? I think I'll, I'll, I'll cop out and say, I guess, all three, really. Um, I mean, particularly, I think the numbers is, is worth looking at. You know, um, a minority government is quite unusual in British politics. It's quite difficult to then make sure that you can get the numbers that you need. Um, as Jill mentioned, the, the May government was relying on a confidence and supply agreement with the DUP. Um, and they sort of maintained their opposition to um, to the protocol that May had negotiated, um, Theresa May had negotiated throughout. Um, so that, that made it difficult. So it's, it's not, but, but then I think, added to that is the fact that Brexit sort of split the main parties in Parliament um, sort of in, in different ways. So there wasn't a sort of traditional right-left divide, a Labour-Conservative divide. It really was a Leave-Remain divide, and particularly a sort of Brexit at whatever cost versus anti-no-deal divide. And I think that's really important, is that what we saw throughout that period is that we knew there was a majority in Parliament against no deal. And so they didn't like the deal Theresa May brought back, but they were determined to do everything they could to stop a no deal exit. What, what we also know is that there wasn't a majority in favour on of 
anything else. And, and that is why we got to that point of gridlock, because we, we saw MPs sort of try and take control of the timetable in the House to stop a no-deal exit, but we didn't see them agree on, on anything else. Um, and that was one of the big problems. I mean, you mentioned the Speaker, and I do think that we do have to recognise that, that John Burko very much saw himself as, as a sort of uh, promoting interests of backbenchers and trying to ensure that Parliament had um, an opportunity to express its will, um, making some quite controversial um, procedural decisions, I would say, um, that facilitated that. But but I think that the key thing was that no one could agree on anything. At various points, there were times when you thought, you know, maybe back in uh, in July 2016, when she became prime minister, maybe after that disaster election result, this was the moment to say, actually, we need to reach out uh, across Parliament, we need to reach out across the country and really think about what do we want our long-run future to be. But by keeping it all very secretive and close, and that's really the Theresa May style, she, you could say, sort of minimised her uh, her opportunity to find something that could command a majority in Parliament or in the country. Well, I suppose she would say she tried with the indicative votes, and as, as Maddie said, still MPs couldn't couldn't choose from any sort of forced on her, I think, by the parliamentarians. Yeah, they were originally forced on her, but then she did commit to a a sort of later series of them. I think there were two rounds of indicative votes. I mean, we all had to become experts in these things we'd never heard of, like indicative votes, humble addresses, standing order number 24 and so on. Joe, were these all, were these procedural hijinks just sort of one off for this period or are we, are they going to have lasting implications? Are we going to see more of them in future? I think it's a very good question. I mean, I think really that, you know, a lot of what we saw over that period, sort of parliamentary period during Theresa May's minority government really was sort of exceptional and a result of those sort of extraordinary combination of circumstances that Maddie's talked about. You know, we've said before that Theresa May often acted as if she had a majority and wasn't sort of conciliatory enough, wasn't, I suppose, recognising enough of the fact that she did need to build consensus across Parliament to make progress. And I think Boris Johnson then taking that further and sort of, in some ways, not trying to build that consensus, but actually building up this sort of rhetoric that Parliament was standing in the way of Brexit. It was a zombie Parliament. It wasn't legitimate and therefore we needed an election. Um, do I think there'll be lasting implications? I think there will be. Um, we aren't. Un- I think we're and they're unlikely to see quite as much parliamentary drama, quite as many sort of procedural tricks as we saw because of those sort of exceptional circumstances. But there will be some impact. I think some direct. Um, it's inevitably, you know, has set a precedent. Even though people said these things were exceptional, I think MPs have you know got used for quite a few years now of having their say. Select committees have been very influential and had a powerful role in holding government to account. And I think our colleague Alice Lilly talks about how how difficult the current government is found sort of managing its backbenches at times, despite a huge majority. And I think we've seen that sort of rebellious group of sort of ERG MPs from Brexit sort of morph into the COVID research group now and some of those sort of of problems in managing backbenches sort of transfer to the COVID context. I also think there's been a big indirect influence as well, which is, you know, ultimately that parliamentary shenanigans sort of led to the Brexit election in 2019. And we saw a change in composition of 
Parliament there. We saw some of those sort of soft Brexit Tory grandees leave Parliament, many new Red Wall Conservatives join. And they're both new MPs, not necessarily familiar with how things work, but also have been elected on delivering for those seats. And we've seen that Brexit has been delivered, but they were also delivered, also elected on sort of promises of delivering levelling up and the COVID recovery more recently. And I think you know, how the government manages that and delivers on that will affect how easy it is to sort of manage those MPs and how much they look to, I suppose, hold the government to account, potentially cause trouble if they feel like it's not, they're not being listened to. And certainly before that generation came in, it was getting very messy in Parliament with all the rebellions and MPs quitting their parties and, and who could forget the short-lived arrival of Change UK and so on. I mean, Jess, was, was, was there another route to different type of Brexit could cross-party working have actually been a little bit more effective? Yeah, I mean, I think the ironic thing about the referendum is that one of its main purposes was to try and manage divisions within the Conservative Party that split between the Eurosceptics and the pro-Europeans. Um, and rather than healing those divisions, because we ended up with a vote to leave, it actually made them worse. Um, and it took the Labour Party along with it. Uh, Labour Party also became very divided on Brexit. Um, And I think that opened the door to this kind of cross-party working that we did see, um, a kind of unprecedented level of um, in the kind of Brexit parliament. Um, MPs were able to defeat the government and secure things like the meaningful vote um, and also prevent a no deal. Um, But as Maddie said, because there was no agreement on the kind of outcome of what an alternative Brexit could look like, or even uh, a consensus that there should be no Brexit, that there should be a kind of second independent second referendum um, or even revoke as, as was the Lib Dem position um, I think that limited the effectiveness of that kind of cross-party working in general I think also it took place all this took place within the kind of wider context of realignment in British politics and I think there were certainly a lot of MPs that didn't feel that they felt that they fit either in the kind of pro-Brexit Conservative Party or in Corbyn's Labour and out of that we have um, as you mentioned one of my uh, specialist subjects um, the Independent Group for Change, also known as Change UK, also known as the Independent Group. Um, but I think they faced a similar problem to the kind of Remain uh, cohort uh, more broadly, in that although they actually didn't have much in common, apart from the fact that they opposed Brexit, they still really struggled to come up with a kind of coherent position and a coherent offer to the public on Brexit. Um, and we saw with the kind of EU um, elections, which could have been a real opportunity um, for those that opposed Brexit to kind of register that discontent. They really you know, didn't perform well at all. And if you contrast that with uh, Nigel Farage's Brexit party, which was very effective at those elections, um, I think fundamentally the limit of effectiveness of those kind of um, those who are pro-Remain or opposed to the government's Brexit is that there were splits within splits within splits, um, which made it interesting to watch um, from, from the outside, certainly, um, but perhaps uh, meant that it, they weren't as effective as they could have been. I've forgotten Change UK. I've had two other names. Thank you for that <laughs> reminder. Um, we, we've spent more than enough time discussing MPs. So, so how about civil servants, the tireless workers behind the scenes, mostly, who are all trying to get Brexit done. Let's um, listen to another clip. This is Melanie Dawes, the Permanent Secretary of what was then the Department of Communities and Local Government. She's speaking at the IFG on the 30th of June 2016 and predicting how Whitehall would react. 
But it's also actually about intellectually, um, and, and, and I think, again, this is a very collective task, needing to recognise that we are all looking through a rather different lens here. And it's going to take us a while to work out what that means. And I think there will be some areas that surprise us. Jill, was the civil service ready mentally in size and the whole way it was set up? Uh, no, but I, gee, I thought what was interesting about Melanie's appearance on that panel was when we'd originally pulled the panel together, we'd got a former cabinet secretary, Lord Turnbull, onto the panel because we'd assumed that the civil service would not want to come out and speak publicly about how it was going to go about tackling Brexit. But then we got a call from Jeremy Hayward, then the cabinet secretary's office, saying, why is there no serving civil servant on this? And we said, because we assumed you wouldn't come. And he said, well, I'm going to send a permanent secretary, a member of the civil service board along to be on your panel. And that was why Melanie appeared, basically, I think, to reassure uh, Brexit supporters that notwithstanding the perception that uh, I think still holds, that the civil service is a bunch of metropolitan elite graduates who all voted Remain, um, that they were definitely up for the task. But I think one of the things that we've seen, and there's quite a lot of testimony around about this, was the civil service was very unprepared. And so I think there was a very, very big learning journey. But of course, in some respects, it was great news for the civil service after you know, all those graphs that the Whitehall Monitor team produced of the civil service being inexorably reduced in size, went into a sharp handbrake turn. Some departments, such as my old department, DEFRA, you know, massively expanded and reversed the cuts that they've seen since 2010. It's been a really odd mix for the civil service of a lot more opportunities, a lot more promotion opportunities, uh, really, really interesting tasks. I think that's one of the things that was really interesting about that appearance by Melanie was just the glint in her eye. Uh, no, this is the most intellectually interesting thing we've been asked to do in my career. So, Well, let's ask, um, let's ask Joe about that, because Joe was a civil servant before joining the IFG. Joe, what was it like at the Treasury being part of its Brexit intake? I think I sort of echo a lot of what Jill was saying. I think, um, I mean, I was one of around 125, I think, in my intake back in September 2017. And that, I think, amounted to about a 10% increase in the size of the Treasury overnight, and many of which to work on Brexit. Uh, you know, as Jill was saying, it's sort of part of a big swell of people just needed to deliver Brexit. And you know, I should say, you know, I was a very lowly civil servant uh, and, and not uh, at the heart of negotiations. But I think there was a sort of starting a real sense of the scale of the task of just how much needed to be done, but also of really being buffeted by politics. I just have memories of watching, you know, the grieve amendment that would need to be a meaningful vote come in on the TV, or we'd watch the development of checkers and those long camera shots of the checkers summit over, uh, you know, over the fields into the garden. Um, and they're sort of, you know, looking at David Davis and Boris Johnson resigning and lots of lots of thinking, uh, you know, would Theresa May survive? Is the government going to keep going? And I think, you know, also though, a genuine sense of wanting to deliver and make it happen and sort of, uh, I think there was just something about just how much energy went into sort of both following the political events and what was going on in Parliament, but also trying to make, thing, make, make things happen. And I think a couple of other sort of reflections, sort of maybe building on Jill's point. One is that I just think there is now this sort of generation of junior civil servants who have ever, only ever really known crisis in a sense, you know, mm -hmm. had came in and joined uh, government uh, during Brexit 
when you know a huge amount of government's attention was on Brexit and delivering it and dealing with all of those different tensions, and then you know, have moved straight into COVID on delivering both Brexit and COVID together, which we've talked about in our reports and how much of a challenge that was. And I think another point, just sort of echoing some of the stuff from the, we talked about on negotiations, was how interesting it was being inside and sort of seeing the UK's positional realisation of what could be achieved in these negotiations changing over time. So I think in the Treasury, there's some sort of financial services. And at the start, this idea that we'd get some sort of bespoke special arrangement for financial services. And then over time, that moved to, well, we'll get some sort of equivalence arrangement, which the EU offers to other third countries, but it will be a special kind of equivalence arrangement, which can only be withdrawn with notice, and there'll be some bells and whistles. And then it was like, oh, no, maybe we'll just get equivalence, but that will be fine. And now it looks like we probably won't even get that. And we're effectively in the sort of no deal type territory financial services that we were sort of action planning for back in 2017, but didn't think we'd end up in. So I think some of that is quite interesting as well, just to watch that, that change over time. Maddie, last year you wrote a report on the, the lessons that the civil service needed to learn from Brexit. What were they and, and have they? Have they learned them? I think one of our one of our criticisms of the civil service from that period was the sort of its failure really to influence the pace of decision making. Now, a lot of that does come down to ministers. Ministers ultimately need to make decisions about what sort of Brexit is going to look like and, and what um, what then needs to be done to achieve that. But I do think that there was a sort of failure to convey to ministers the real consequences of not making a decision, because that's essentially what we saw was that, you know, the prime minister um, didn't didn't decide sort of what sort of Brexit she wanted until, well, the Chequers white paper in, in June 2018. And that, that delayed no deal plan. And that that meant that the civil service really was scrambling ahead of of January, February 2019, when there was a real possibility of leaving without a deal. Um, And I think that's something that I think when you've got ministers who make decisions, that's sort of not a problem. But but when you are in that territory, I think that's sort of lesson that that particularly senior civil servants can, can take from that from that period. I think to sort of praise the civil service, I think we can't underestimate uh, quite what an achievement um, it has been preparing for um, first sort of no deal, but also this pretty distant relationship we now have with with the EU. And I think um, Jill sort of already talked a bit about how how important uh, how important the, the EU was to sort of the functioning of the UK. I think I heard one civil servant describe it as it's sort of they realised it was the plumbing of the UK, and and actually they're going to have to really get a much better sense on on how businesses operate, on how the border works, um, and how to sort of address that. I mean, you know, just to, to sort of point out that ahead of March 2019, they needed 26 new systems to go live, and I think. I think maybe not all of them quite would have functioned as they'd have liked, but they had done a decent amount of work getting there. And I think we saw the ability to sort of make decisions more quickly um, and be more responsive to things. And I think particularly the sort of innovation under Boris Johnson of having daily um, operation, a cabinet, a cabinet committee operations um meeting to sort of try and drive um, d- delivery of, of these sorts of um, programs. And I think that's that's quite impressive. And the, the, the other one that actually I'd also point to, and I think this is something that has definitely um, helped uh, during the coronavirus response was the sort of better agility, better at moving people between departments. You know, quite there was quite a significant transfer of civil servants between departments ahead of t- March 2019 in anticipation of an ODL. And I think having gone through that once, it made it easier to do it again in October 2019, but also um, when managing the COVID response. And one of the things that from conversations we've had with civil servants over the last year has been that the no deal planning on Brexit was actually incredibly helpful when it came to the COVID response. And I think that's been a sort of lesson 
that the civil service have taken one one example for example um, that, that we've been pointed to is just understanding better those sorts of supply chains and how businesses work so that when there were pressures on the border and and sort of concerns about food um for example last last year when there was the sort of um run on supermarkets in march 2020 they actually had a plan about how to deal with that and they were able to exercise that so i think there are sort of broad lessons around decision making and and the role the civil service plays in that that can be taken but also very practical lessons that they were able to put to good use very quickly when we were confronted with the pandemic. Michael Gove did single out the sort of way in which his Brexit Operations Committee had worked as one of his sort of inspirations for how he wanted to reform the civil service when he launched his declaration on government reform a couple of weeks back. And that's just what I mean, there's no, no discussion about the way the civil service responded to Brexit. It would be complete without a, a quick look at the, the short-lived department for exiting European Union. Can I just get your your review, reviews, your thoughts on, on that department, whether it performed better than expected, whether it did, did the job well, or, or whether it wasn't the smartest move in the first place? Well, in perhaps one of the shortest lived IFG recommendations ever, um, we just published a report, the first IFG's report on Brexit by me and Julian McRae, saying it would be a mistake to create a dedicated department for exiting the EU because it would give rise to lots of tensions, things like that. You do much better to have you know, a sort of big coordinating unit in the Cabinet Office that will sit better in our system of government. And I'd just been over to hand it over to a junior minister in the Cabinet Office, um, Lord Bridges, and I'd come out of his private office and his private office was getting super excited and said, Andrea Ledson's about to make a statement. Andrea Ledson's about to make a statement. So we turned on the TV and it was Andrea Ledson after her interview, uh, remember that weekend that the Times had run, about Theresa May's um, relatively lack of uh, fitness for being prime minister because she wasn't a mother. I'm sure Andrea Ledson wouldn't characterise it quite like that. Uh, and... No, by that sort of afternoon, it was clear Theresa May was going to be elected unopposed as Conservative leader. She took over two days later and instantly announced, allow, uh, instantly announced the setting up of the department for exiting the EU. So, yeah, we put that down for lack of impact, but it has <laughs> given us years of schadenfreude, as we said, well, we told you so, we told you so, uh, that it wouldn't work. I think what it exposed was quite a lot of naivety. Uh, even though people said David Davis and Theresa May had quite a good relationship, that their agendas weren't identical and that they had to be absolutely two peas in a pod with David Davis's Theresa May mini-me in order for that arrangement to work. And if it wouldn't happen like that, then it was never going to work. And we saw lots of other problems. I remember, I think, um, Maddie and I doing an interview with a, uh, a senior official in an unnamed government department about whether his department paid any attention to depart to Department of Exiting the EU. And basically, in the government hierarchy, uh, other departments, big-hitting departments, would pay attention to the Cabinet Office, attention to the Treasury, but would they basically comply with what became, I think a lot of people saw, quite annoying and burdensome requests from a minor line department headed up by a secretary of state who the traffic did not stop for no so i think it was always a bit of a mistake though actually it doesn't mean to say that the officials there and we indeed exported um some ifg officials uh there uh or ifg staffers went to work in department of exit you doesn't mean they didn't do a good job they drew up the legislation they coordinated things 
uh, no deal planning is coordinated, but it actually always made much more sense for that to be run from the cabinet office. One of the most short-lived government departments, the Department for Extreme European Union. Let's end by looking at an area which Brexit may yet have the biggest impact on, and that's the State of the Union. We're going to go back to the archives here one last time. Here's former Prime Minister Tony Blair speaking at the IFG in April 2019. Are there still pressures for secession? Well, in Scotland, yes. But I still think they won't succeed unless Brexit pushes us into a position where um, that kind of gets Scottish independence over the line. If you have a hard Brexit, which is possible. And in Northern Ireland, where without Brexit, I would be very confident the union would stick together. But again, Brexit is an issue there. Um, Jess Blair was not alone in warning that Brexit's impact on the very fabric of the UK um, would be very profound. And has it proved to be? I think certainly, as as you said, uh, this is one of the areas where there might be the most lasting impact um, that on the union. And I think it's affected the UK in two ways. The first is how it has shaped attitudes towards the union. Um, And I think we see this most clearly in Scotland, um, that there has been a rise um, in support for independence as a result of Brexit. We've seen people who voted no back in 2014, but supported Remain switch towards yes. And I think it's it's worth uh, remembering that that wasn't you know, always inevitable. At the beginning of uh, the Brexit process, um, there wasn't a lot of evidence that um, Brexit was changing opinion. It wasn't until March 2019 um, that yet that yes started to pull ahead in the polls. Um, but certainly now the issue of a second independence referendum is a very live issue. Uh, Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP government were re-elected um, in May on a promise to hold a second independence referendum. I think we might see a constitutional standoff here between the UK government and the Scottish government when that power to hold that referendum is actually requested and certainly everything is all to pay for but I think the union is looking more fragile than perhaps it has in a long time and certainly uh, more fragile than it was before Brexit Um, but I think there's also another way in which it's impacted on the union and that's um, the way it's impacted on devolution. Um, You have it's worth remembering again that uh, devolution took place within the context of EU membership. So it means that all these kind of structures um, and powers were devolved um, in the expectation that the EU framework would sort of hold it together. Um, And I think what Brexit's done is really reopen those questions as to how issues that are for the UK government reserved issues like EU affairs, like international trade, um, that have big implications for devolved areas like agriculture and food standards um, and the environment, how those two powers kind of intersect and what Um, structures are there to be able to um, discuss these various implications and for the devolved administrations to be able to have an impact on on decision making. Um, I'll do a quick plug for the reports that will be coming out shortly that Maddie and I have been working on um, on the UK internal market and I think that's one of the big holes that Brexit has left essentially um, in that it was the EU framework that used to govern the trading relationship between the four parts of the UK and now that's fallen away that's just one of the questions now that going forward we need we need to think about. It's an excellent report um, I but I mean, Brexit was always going to have have this impact but how much of the problem lies with the way that the UK government has approached its, its handling of the devolved administrations I mean they've certainly Nicholas Sturgeon Carwin Jones, then Mark Drake, have all, have all complained. Yeah, absolutely. I think there perhaps hasn't been as much engagement um, with the devolved administrations on 
Brexit and the shape of Brexit as there could have been at the beginning. You know, Theresa May made a lot of promises about making sure it was a kind of UK wide Brexit, acknowledging the fact that both Scotland and Northern Ireland voted to remain, although the whole of the UK voted to leave. Um, But actually, we've seen all the kind of major decisions on Brexit, the decision to trigger Article 50, to to agree the withdrawal agreement and the future relationship have all happened um, despite strong opposition um, from the Scottish and Welsh governments and certain um, parts of Northern Ireland as well, particularly um, in the withdrawal agreement. Um, But I think there's a question here as to whether better structures could have helped that or whether actually fundamentally it's just the point of political disagreement I mean, fundamentally, it comes down to whether the UK government is willing to change its position, whether it was willing to go for a different type of Brexit in acknowledgement of the fact that there was um, opposition and different positions in Scotland, Wales and, and Northern Ireland. And I think fundamentally, this government's priority has been delivering the kind of Brexit that it wants and wasn't willing to let the devolved administrations act as a kind of constraint on their own ambitions in that sense. And I think... Uh, this is Brexit has highlighted uh, that kind of fundamental tension. The fact that ultimately, if it's a matter for the UK government exclusively, there's not a lot that devolved administrations can do to try and change the UK government's mind. But I think this is a problem that might reoccur when we start agreeing new trade deals um, and various other issues. Um, so I think structures couldn't solve the problem, but perhaps there is still room for kind of more engagement and more information sharing to try and prevent these big high profile disagreements that we've seen throughout the Brexit process from occurring again. Could I just, I mean, just jumping in, I mean, the other thing I would do is draw a distinction between Scotland and Wales. I mean, I think the thing that we've got to remember is that Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland, you know, she's always going to have an axe to grind with the UK government because she's interested in, you know, her main aim is for Scotland to become an independent country. So sort of cooperating and collaborating with the UK government is never going to be in her political interest. I think that's where possibly, particularly under Theresa May, because I do think we have to draw a distinction between the sort of approach of the May government to the Johnson government. But I do think under Theresa May, there might have been more room to try and build a better relationship with Wales. You know, ultimately, Wales was one of the nations of the UK that did vote um, to leave. So, you know, uh, Carwin Jones at the time, then Mark Drayford, you know, there is a, there was a sort of um, imperative on them to demonstrate that they were willing to accept the Brexit vote. And um, they're also a sort of interested in it, you know they're still in favour of the union, and and they want the yes. There is a sort of desire for a greater role in decision making. I think, and I think Jess has sort of set out the problems with that quite clearly. But I do think that the the fact that from the beginning Theresa May's government sort of was always operating sort of against both um, Carwin Jones and Nicola Sturgeon, that you had this sort of alliance between Wales and Scotland. I think that that was a problem for her, and I think that possibly uh, reaching out more directly to to Wales may have may have sort of helped um, at least sort of demonstrate the UK government might have been behaving more reasonably. Obviously, you do have the same problem in Wales that it is a Labour government. Theresa May was Conservative and, uh, Prime Minister, so there is still going to be tensions there. But I do think that's a sort of interesting area to look at. And, and the other thing I would just um, say is that what we have heard, and this sort of goes back to the conversations we've had with civil servants, is that despite the sort of very real tensions and problems at the political level, we have seen a better building of relationship between officials in the in the, the nations of the UK. And I think that's a sort of, if we can say a positive from Brexit, there's a better understanding of devolution within Whitehall, but also stronger relationships with, with officials, I think, in, in all three other nations. Um, Jill, we, we need a whole separate podcast to 
explain what's what's been happening in Northern Ireland. But um, do you think people in the UK government or, or maybe in the EU underestimated um, the huge role Northern Ireland would play in Brexit talks? Uh, yes, I think there was. Uh, I think there was a very big problem on the UK side that uh, Northern Ireland was, you know, really quite out of sight, out of mind. Of course, during the referendum, uh, Tony Blair and John Major did go and warn of the threats. But I think the Good Friday Agreement was so much just in the background. Um, so many people had actually thought that uh, the troubles were just behind us, and they didn't really have to worry about that. It was all complicated, I think, enormously by the fall of the executive, um, which meant that we had this very, very one-sided representation of Ireland in Parliament, the DUP trying to exercise their sort of you know power over the May government rather than being forced to act as sort of advocates on behalf of the whole government as we might have seen if the executive hadn't fallen in January 2017. And I think one of the really interesting what-ifs around this, which might sound very weird, is we've been doing some interviews and some people have said actually, you know, Martin McGuinness back in autumn 2016 was saying some really interesting things in the Joint Ministerial Committee and things like that. I think one of the really interesting things is if things had happened differently in Northern Ireland, no re- renewable heat incentive scandal, no fall of the executive, Martin McGuinness has still been around and things like that. Might the UK have been forced to think through how they would manage the Irish issue much sooner? And might they have been forced to confront that before they fixed on what sort of Brexit they wanted? So I think I'm going to leave it there. We've got the Brexit podcast done in around an hour but like brexit this story isn't quite done at all but i want to end by asking you all where you think we'll be five years from now for the 10-year anniversary of brexit show it's a very good question a very big question i mean i still (laughs) think we'll be talking about europe in some way there are lots of sort of potential flashpoints which could cause tensions uh you know like any close neighbors i mean around fishing energy northern ireland I think the big question for me is about the tone of that relationship. I mean, will the UK be seen as that sort of annoying younger sibling constantly prodding and teasing from the sidelines? Or is it going to be the older one who's gone off to uni but keeps in touch, comes back for special occasions, is a bit more mature? And I think, you know, where we are in 10 years' time and how we resolve some of those flashpoints, which are inevitably going to arise in this sort of very close relationship, will sort of depend on on how that relationship with the UK and the EU evolves and what sort of stance that the UK government and EU decide to take to that relationship. I mean, it's still a bit too hot to handle at the moment because it's, you know, early days still, really. Maddie, what do you think? I mean, I'm going to say, honestly, who knows? <laughs> I think I think the next five years, there are so many things that could happen that will have quite a big impact on, on where that relationship ends up. I mean, not least another election in the UK. I think looking back over the last five years and listening to this sort of this chat that we've just had, I mean, so much of it was unpredictable, unanticipated. And I do think that particularly given the year that we've just had in terms of the pandemic and how that recovery happens, what what happens with the Labour Party, whether or not um, the Conservatives win another term. I mean, all of that is going to have quite a big impact. And that's just talking about the UK side of things. There's also a lot of politics happening in the EU, um, if I can be pretty broad in that sense. So I think I think Joe's sort of characterisation of, of the relationship, I think, is, is a useful one. But I do think that at this stage, it's just so hard to predict. Jess, where do you think we'll be? 
in five years from now, what we'll be talking about? Well, I hope I'm wrong, but I think what we'll probably still be talking about is the Northern Ireland Protocol, um, because there is a requirement for uh, the Assembly to be consulted on whether it consents to those uh, arrangements around trade every four to eight years, more likely four. Um, we'll have the first of those votes in 2024. Um, and so there is going to be a kind of recurring debate on this between the UK and the EU. We've obviously seen this be the main source of tension post-Brexit. I think actually it's been more uh, fractious than perhaps uh, some people had anticipated. Certainly I had anticipated. I hope we get to a point where these discussions are ongoing, but in a slightly more constructive way. And we've just had some positive news and that it looked like the UK, um, the EU might agree to extend the grace period for sausages in Northern Ireland. So that's a positive step, but doesn't resolve all the issues. Um, but yeah, I think Brexit's certainly not done yet um, and will have lasting implications, um, hopefully on better terms, um, but we'll just have to wait and see. And Jill, five years from now, the Brexit podcast will be talking about... Uh, we well, Jess may be on uh, talking at great length about Scottish independence or not, and Scotland's attempts to rejoin the EU. Who knows about that? But I'm going to go back to Joe's uh, tortured family metaphor. Uh, Joe talked about sort of you know kids leaving home. I think the real risk is it's more like a divorce. And uh, as those of us who are a bit older than the IFGs on the rest of the podcast know that divorces can go one of two ways. You can have divorces where actually the two sides go on hating each other forever and everything has to be seen through actually why the other side was wrong and justifying their decision to split up. Or you can get to a situation where actually the two sides, remember, they basically always quite liked each other. Maybe it didn't quite work out to have that very close relationship. They've got lots of common interests and things, projects they want to pursue together, not least the kids. And so they you know, may have partnered up with other people, but they need to make that relationship work. And I hope that within five years' time, we can stop defining the entire of the UK-EU relationship through the prism of the last five years. So I think that's a, a nice optimistic note to end on. Um, many thanks to, to Jill Rutter, to Joe Marshall, to Maddie Timont-Jack and to Jess Sargent for that brilliant tour through the Brexit landscape. And thank you all for listening at home. There's loads of great Brexit-related reports on our site, five years of reports, in fact, and a brand new one, as we talked about earlier, from, from Jess and Maddie on the UK internal market. Guess what? It's quite complicated. So don't forget to check out all the other great IFG podcasts too at Acast, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. And keep an eye out for the latest episode of Inside Briefing 2, Brexit Might Just Feature. See you in five years' time for the 10-year Brexit special podcast, everyone. Thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events.